Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. Uh, trials are often disorienting, even when, even when you stop asking the question, why? And start asking yourself, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I glorify God in this trial? Even then, it's often hard to know the answer to that question. In this morning's passage, James is going to show us how we can learn the answer. The passage is James 1, 5 to 8. And let's begin by reading this passage in its context, starting in verse 2 and continuing through verse 18. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." I'm sure you've all heard the story of Aladdin's wonderful lamp in one iteration or another over the years. Of course, the most famous version of this story is Disney's Aladdin, but the origin of the story goes back long before that to the book, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. The genie, no doubt, is the most memorable element to that story. When Aladdin rubs the lamp, the genie is released and he grants Aladdin whatever he wishes. That's what captures our imagination when we hear the story, the idea of having our wishes granted. We wonder what that would be like to to discover a genie that would give us whatever we want. In modern retellings of the story, Aladdin is limited to just three wishes. And that adds an element to the story that, that makes it even more intriguing. Suddenly there's a dilemma. Aladdin has unlimited power, but only for a limited amount of time. That means the choice has to be made. When we hear the story, we feel the weight of that choice. We sense the pressure that Aladdin must feel, not to waste this priceless opportunity to not waste what's been given to him. That element, the the three wishes, it draws us into the story. To know that you can have whatever you want, but you have to restrict it to just three things, that that pulls you into the story, and you start to ask yourself, what would I ask for? If a genie granted me three wishes, what would I do if I were Aladdin? It's a fun and, I think, revealing exercise to ask yourself, what are the three things you want most? What would be the wisest way to spend those three wishes? 
We've probably all sat around pondering that question at one point or another when we were kids. Well, believe it or not, the story of Aladdin isn't entirely make-believe. There was actually one man in history who was presented with just such a dilemma, and that was King Solomon. But he wasn't granted three wishes. He was given just one. And it wasn't a genie that promised to grant his wish. It was God. This was before the temple had been built back in the early days of Solomon's reign. 1 Kings 3, 3 3-5 says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Could you imagine that? I mean, this isn't some second-rate genie that's speaking to you. It's the Lord God Almighty, the one who brought all things into existence simply by the power of His Word. He has literally limitless power. There's nothing He can't do. And He's offering you the opportunity to have whatever you ask. What would you do in that scenario? Put yourself in Solomon's shoes. You're already king. You're the most powerful man in Israel. So you don't need to ask for fame necessarily or or power. What would you ask for? Would you ask for riches to go along with that power? Or would you maybe ask for even more power to become the, the most powerful king on the entire earth? What would you ask for? What would you want? Do you know what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom. He looked at all God had done in in making him king, and as he felt the weight of responsibility that he had as king, he knew that the thing he needed more than anything else was the wisdom to rule God's people. He said to God, O Lord my God, you you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to come out or, or, or how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And that's exactly what God gave him. Legendary wisdom. That's an interesting choice, isn't it? I doubt that when you sat around pondering that question when you were a child, that you said to yourself, you know, if I had three wishes, the first thing that I'd ask for is wisdom. You probably wished for fame or or riches or or beauty or immortality, something like that. But not Solomon. The first thing he asked for is wisdom. And the scripture affirms Solomon's decision. Not only does God praise and reward Solomon for his choice by giving him riches and honor in addition to wisdom, but the scripture even directly says that wisdom is to be valued above essentially everything else. Proverbs 3, 13 to 18, for instance, says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her right hand, and uh, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. 
those who hold her fast are called blessed. Again, the scripture affirms wisdom above everything else. And, and we see this truth played out before our eyes every single day. An imbecile, an imbecile can squander his family's wealth. And a fool can destroy a nation with his decisions when given the reins of power. But a man of understanding can practically turn straw into gold with the resourcefulness of his wisdom. This is why Proverbs says wisdom is more precious than gold before going on to say that long life is in her right hand and riches and honor in her left. It's because wisdom teaches a person how to gain and hold on to money and it instructs a person in how to preserve their life. In other words, while, while riches or power or fame or talent or beauty can be tremendous resources, wisdom is to be valued above them all because only wisdom knows how to wield the potential of those things. Wisdom alone can make such things useful. Of course, Scripture doesn't define wisdom in the same way that the world defines wisdom. There are some similarities. For instance, both Scripture and the world would define wisdom as understanding. Meaning it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just a collection of facts. It's the ability to bring those facts to bear on a situation in a useful way. Therefore, both the world and Scripture would likewise say that the one who is wise, they understand the nature of the world around them, meaning they have an accurate picture of reality. They understand things and and their relationship with one another as they really are, and that's what enables the wise man to use his knowledge in a useful way. However, this is where where, uh, what the Bible has to say about wisdom and the world has to say about wisdom will differ. This is where they're going to differ. They have two fundamentally different ways of understanding the nature of reality. According to the Bible, the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the fundamental reality. He's the source of all things. He's the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life. He's all-powerful and eternal and knows all things since all things are created by Him and for Him. And since He's the source of all things, and since He can do all things and knows all things, this means that, according to the Scripture, wisdom starts with being rightly related to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says Proverbs 9.10. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Again, that makes sense because according to the Bible, reality is defined by God. So if you want to have wisdom, it begins with understanding and knowing God. All truth is going to be framed in relation to His nature and character. So wisdom starts with being rightly related to God. It comes from understanding and knowing God. And since it comes with understanding and knowing God, then this means that it's going to be expressed in two primary ways according to the Scripture. First, wisdom is going to be expressed through saving faith in Jesus Christ. He is the incarnate Word of God. According to Paul, in Him are are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And He accomplishes our salvation through His perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross. A person is reconciled to God through faith in His name. So if wisdom starts with being rightly related to God, then it's going to be expressed first through saving faith in Jesus Christ. The one who is wise knows Christ, who is acquainted with His person and character. And they trust in the cross for their salvation. And then the second way that wisdom is expressed, according to the Scripture, is with righteousness. Again, if God created the world, if He defines truth, then understanding is going to be expressed in interacting with the world according to the ways that He designed it. And that's expressed through His commands. 
This is most especially true when one considers that as one sins, they offend God, and as they turn to Him in faith, they please Him. Since He controls all things, again, one needs to be rightly related to God if they are wise, and that's going to be expressed through obedience to His Word. Psalm 19 presents God's commands in this way, as wisdom. When it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then note this, how, how, how the, the commands of God are spoken of is in the same way that Proverbs speaks of wisdom. It says, More desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The world, of course, doesn't see reality in this way. It doesn't define truth according to the God of the Bible. And so, number one, it rejects Jesus Christ. The message of sin and judgment and salvation doesn't correspond to their understanding of reality. And so the idea of abandoning everything for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ is utter nonsense in their mind. To quote Paul once again, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It seems very unwise. But the world's understanding of wisdom doesn't mean they only reject Christ. It means they also reject God's commands. Again, they reject the God of the Bible. And since they reject Him and His understanding of things, this means that they also reject His commands. And sin is the result. You see a wonderful picture of this in Romans 1. Where Paul says that that as a result of their rejection of God, the unbelieving world has become, quote, futile in their understanding. And, quote, their foolish hearts were darkened. As the passage goes on to describe the result of this foolishness, the the result of their rejection of God and His understanding, it goes on to describe an an increasing descent into greater and greater sin. First, God gives them over to sins of the body so that their bodies might be dishonored by their foolishness. And then second, God gives them over to a debased mind. They end up filled with sin, not only of the body, but of the mind. Paul says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, Evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. In other words, their rejection of God leads to a being that has been totally corrupted by sin, both inside and out. The point that I'm trying to make here is that The Scripture often presents wisdom as going hand-in-hand with righteousness. They're one and the same. And the reason why this is so is because God is the source of all good things. As as James will state later, uh, just later in this chapter, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow due to change. So if God is the source of all good things, then wisdom will be expressed by being rightly related to God. Not only is He the designer of the world, but He's the one who gives every good and perfect gift. So wisdom starts there. And that means it's going to be expressed not only in knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, it's also going to be expressed in obedience to His commands. I pointed out last week that we often don't think this way. In verses 2-4, to James says that we should count it all joy 
when we encounter various trials. And we saw that the reason we should rejoice is because trials, when received in faith, produce righteousness. They make us, in James' words, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Most of us have a hard time seeing how we should be excited over trials if that's all they produce, righteousness. And that's because we don't really value righteousness. We don't see the wisdom in it. We'd rather have our idols. We'd rather have our sin. Our natural inclination is is to think that obedience is bondage and sin freedom. And the reason we think that is because of what I just read to you in Romans. We're born into this world as sinners whose natural inclination is towards sin. We reject the wisdom of God. And the result of that is a mind that's been darkened by sin. A mind that does not understand. A mind that sees the world upside down. In short, we think that obedience is bondage and sin freedom because we've been deceived. We've we've believed the very old lie that has been declared by Satan from the beginning of the world. And that lie is that God is cruel. That Eden is a prison. And that God's commands are given to keep us from reaching our full potential. But the scripture declares, Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, folks, God isn't trying to keep anything from us. When He calls us to obedience, it isn't to hurt us, it's to bless us. And I understand you might think that's a man-centered to to say that, or, or that it treats God like a genie granting our wishes, but when you understand that the root of all God's commands are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that all of His commands are an expression of that, then I think you can understand how this works. God doesn't just seek our happiness. He requires it. He requires it. Only the Scriptures tell us that joy is to be found in Him. That glorifies God. So God's glory and our good, those two ideas aren't incompatible. God is glorified by expressing His goodness to us. His grace demonstrates His greatness. So I'll say it again. When God calls us to obedience, when He calls us even to glorify Him, that isn't to hurt us. It's to bless us. What he desires is that we would find joy in the greatest and most perfect gift that there is, and that's himself. Now, the the reason why I'm taking all this time to say all of this is because in today's passage, James tells us how to acquire wisdom. And in order to understand the points he's making here, I think we have to understand what he means when he talks about wisdom. And it's very easy to distort the meaning of this passage by taking whatever we regard to be wisdom and attach it to this verse. Like, 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 you know, we've been offered a new job and we're wondering whether or not we should take it and we think that James is telling us how to find the wisdom we need to know which job is going to be better for us and better in the way that we define it. More money, more prestige, career mobility, or however. And that's not what James is talking about here. Not exactly. There may be a promise for wisdom as it relates to your career decisions in this passage. It's just going to be defined differently from how you're probably inclined to think about it. For James, wisdom is everything that we just discussed regarding the way the Bible speaks about wisdom. It's an understanding of the world from God's perspective, and it's expressed in faith and obedience. 
This comes out most clearly at the end of chapter 3, where James says in verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Who's wise and understanding among you? He says, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In verses 17 and 18, he continues by saying, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see the interplay there once again between wisdom and righteousness? He says first that wisdom is expressed in these various virtues. And then he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, the two concepts are almost interchangeable. So when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is what he's talking about. The wisdom that's from above, that's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He's talking about righteousness. And contextually, he's framing this wisdom within the discussion about trials that we got into last week. Remember, verses 2 to 4 tell us that trials are necessary to produce a steadfastness in us that, 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 quote, makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And remember how I said that this was a reference to our sanctification, that, that what James is saying is that, is that trials are necessary to, to purify our faith to the degree that we're able to remain steadfast long enough to grow in our understanding of righteousness. You remember all that from last week? Well, look at how James begins in verse 5. In verse 4, he says the full effect of steadfastness is that we will be lacking in nothing. Now, using the same word in Greek, he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. You see the connection there. James is is building on his previous thought. One of the things that trials requires is wisdom. When you're suffering, when you receive some bit of bad news, or perhaps someone sins against you, whatever external pressure it might be, your natural inclination is probably to sin. Your first response, your most natural response when someone hurts you is probably to get angry and lash back. When you receive some bit of devastating news about your finances or your health, you're likely to get anxious or to be afraid. When you have a a rough day at work, your first instinct is probably to try to relieve the pressure by seeking comfort in some type of idol. It's just what we as sinners do, because that's what makes sense to us. The fruit of our sinful hearts is sin, and so when we encounter trials, we're prone to take actions that the Bible consistently, consistently regards as foolishness. This means that when we're confronted with trial as a Christian, before we respond, we often need to pause and ask ourselves, what is the the right response here? What is the wise response? What would God say I should do here? Because those types of responses aren't natural to us. We have to learn what those responses are. And what informs us about what what our response should be? The answer is wisdom. Again, it's understanding the world as it really is, which means seeing it from God's perspective. Wisdom is what equips us to handle trials rightly. For example, wisdom teaches you exactly what we learned last week, that that trials aren't ever a cause for despair, because God uses these trials in your life to sanctify you. I know I use this example all the time, but, but, but... Paul's thorn in the flesh. He, you know, he prays to God three times to have it removed. God doesn't remove it. Instead, he tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
And that's true. One of the benefits of trials is that they humble you. They make you dependent on God in a way that you're not normally inclined to be when you're doing well. And when you're dependent on God, looking to Him for strength, or as we're seeing here, when you're seeking Him for understanding, it's then that you become spiritually effective. Wisdom teaches us this. It tells us the trials in our life are not meant to destroy us, but to heal us. They're for our good. That understanding helps us to embrace the trial and ask the question, what can I learn here, instead of trying to eject from it? Wisdom is what teaches us to see the trial as an instrument for the glory of God instead of as a problem. And then, once we're looking at the trial in this way, wisdom informs us of what righteousness looks like in the current situation. The kids start disobeying. You know, you're at home, the kids start disobeying, they start yelling and acting up, the pressure is turned on, and your first inclination is to raise your voice and threaten them with all the punishment that you'll inflict upon them if they don't obey. But what does wisdom say? It says, first, first, this mini-trial is an opportunity for sanctification. God means to make you holy here. And then when you start running through the catalog of Scripture, asking yourself, what does righteousness look like here? What does it tell you? Again, it tells you first that your anger is foolishness. We'll see that later here in chapter 1 when James says in verses 19 to 20, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Sinful anger is not the means to a righteous end. God will never be glorified in that. The Scripture tells you that when you speak your mind to vent your anger, it's foolishness. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Again, it's not going to produce what you think it is. It's not going to help you. It's only going to make the situation worse. It's going to destroy you. So then, what is wise? Well, if you're looking at the situation from God's perspective, from what He says about the world, then in that moment you'll, you'll be reminded that your children are immortal souls who have been born into this world with an inclination towards sin, to rebel against authority, to disregard others, and to think only of themselves. And you'll remember that you as their parent have been placed into their life and given authority over them for a very short period of time to teach them about God and to call them to repentance. You've been placed in their life to tell them about Christ and His wisdom and the superiority of what it's like to know and obey Him. Their problem is their heart. And, and you've been given to help shepherd their heart into a relationship with God. And what does that look like? Again, wisdom will instruct you. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding, a man of wisdom, will draw it out. It's the man or woman who understands the world, who has spent time understanding sin and how it operates and the struggles that we all undergo with it. It's that person that knows how to bring the child's heart to the surface in such a way that sees that, that they can show their child their error and lead them to repentance. And at the end of the day, that, that may mean that you have to discipline them for their outbursts, especially if it's done in defiance to your authority. But even then, wisdom also reminds you that you too are a sinner. And so when you correct, it will be done with the kind of grace and compassion that you should expect to come from one sinner in need of mercy correcting another one. Do you see what comes out in that moment then? What comes out is instruction, correction, not mere punishment, and it's a correction that's done in gentleness and love. 
Do you see then how wisdom instructs us and how to respond to trials? You see how differently these kinds of responses are from the way that we're inclined to respond to pressure. And so do you see why James would follow up his instruction on trials with a word about how to find wisdom? Wisdom as the Bible defines it. Trials can can purify our faith so that they can make us resolute enough to be perfected by them. But faith alone doesn't simply supply us with what we need to be made complete in holiness. We also need wisdom. And that's not to diminish the importance of faith in the sanctification process. I think we'll see next week that faith is actually crucial to the reception of wisdom. It's absolutely vital in the whole process. But faith alone will not instruct you with what you need to be actually be righteous. For that, you will need the wisdom that comes through faith. So let me say it one more time. When James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's not a general wisdom that he's talking about. The wisdom to choose the job that will best advance your career or something like that. He's talking about the wisdom of righteousness. And he's talking about that wisdom specifically as it relates to trials, the the wisdom that we need to be righteous in the midst of trials. So if we were applying the following promise to the person trying to figure out what kind of job they should pursue, then this is going to be a wisdom that informs them how to make a righteous decision. It's going to frame that decision in light of the gospel and Jesus Christ. It's going, to, it's going to lead them to ask the question, what would this decision look like from God's perspective? And then it's going to remind the individual that they're a sinner who's been purchased by the blood of Christ and that the whole bent of their life is now to be performed in service of Jesus Christ to see His gospel advance and His name glorified. And then it's going to put the, the meaning of their career into that perspective. Are you following me here? Kind of see where we're going with this? So now, let's look at what James says here. At the beginning of verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, and just so you know, the way James phrases this, the expectation is that's all of us. No one's exempt from this. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, and then he gives two commands that tell us how to seek it. And we don't have the time, a lot of time remaining here this morning. Uh, just so you know, while we're in James, I'm going to do what I can to cut the length of my messages down to about 40 to 45 minutes. So we don't have a lot of time remaining here this morning. And what James is saying here is really important. I can't emphasize this enough. This verse has the potential to revolutionize your walk as a Christian. And so with the time we have left, I want to look at just the first command that we find here. And then I think the second command is going to keep us plenty busy next week. The first thing that James, that James tells us to do is this. He says, ask God. Ask God. We see this in verse 5. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So if you seek wisdom in the face of trials, if you want to know how to be righteous when the pressure is on, if you want to know what that even looks like, this is where you start. You ask God. Now, I think we can already see why we do this from what we've discussed so far. Again, God's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal. Basically, He possesses all wisdom. To quote Proverbs 3, 19-20, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. Again, He's designed the creation. He knows how it works. Righteousness is based on His character. 
So if we want to have true wisdom, then we need to go to the source, and that's God. But, but you know, James adds an additional element to this exhortation. He tells us to ask God, not just because he possesses wisdom, but because he's eager to give it. James roots the promise back in the character of God himself, and he does this in two ways. First, he tells us that God, by his nature, gives without hesitation. That's actually how this word generously should be translated here. It's the word aplos, and it means something like simply or without reserve. The idea is that it's a sincere giving. It's a genuine giving. Most commentators seem to agree that the best way to translate this, therefore, would be without hesitation. Keep that in mind as we get into verses 6 to 8 next week. James is making a contrast here between a God who does not hesitate to give and a man who does hesitate to receive. So God is eager to give. That's the idea. Over the past uh, few weeks, I've mentioned that James appears to borrow from the teachings of Jesus. Oh, he doesn't quote Jesus. Rather, he reproduces Jesus' teaching in his own words. He's, he's assimilated Jesus' teaching to the point that they become his own thoughts. And so you can see Jesus' fingerprints on what he says uh, without it coming across like slavish repetition. Well, it would appear that James probably has in mind what Jesus says in Luke 11, 9-13. There, Jesus says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if, he has, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You can see the repetition between those two passages. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. James says, let him ask God and it will be given him. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. James instead speaks of someone asking for the Holy Spirit. Again, they're very similar passages. Regardless, Jesus' point in Luke 11 is that that God is a good father. He loves his children. And so he eagerly is going to give them every good gift they ask for. He's not going to play tricks on them and give them a snake instead of a fish when they need food. Not even evil fathers would do that, and God is much better than that. So so we should expect that God will give us the things we need when we ask for it. That's James' point here as well. God gives without hesitation. There's no debate or deliberation on his part. He has already determined that he will give you the wisdom you seek. Of course, I should probably point out that this isn't a blank check. By the time we get to James 4, we'll see God doesn't answer prayers that are motivated by idolatry or sin. He's jealous for His children. So if they're coming to Him asking for ways that they can basically rebel against Him, of course He's not going to hear those types of requests. That's what James means when he says in James 4, 2-3, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. It's like when my son comes to me at the store asking for money. If I ask him why, and he tells me, well, so I can go have candy, uh, most of the time I'm probably going to say no. Not every time, but most of the time I'll probably say no. It's not good for him. And on top of that, he's really just thinking about himself. But if he comes to me and he says, well, I want some money so I can get something for my sister, I'm much more inclined to answer his request. And most especially if it's something that's truly good for her. So it is with God. God isn't going to answer bad prayers, prayers that are driven by sinful desires. Again, as James is going to say later in this chapter, God only gives good gifts. 
He's utterly pure, utterly whole. He's consistent. So he's only going to give good gifts. So he won't answer requests that are driven by sin. But when his children come to him saying, Father, will you show me how to love you? Will you show me how to find you in the midst of this dark trial? He's only too eager to say, yes, of course. Here you go. Here's the wisdom you need. Keep this in mind when you're undergoing a trial. No matter the size, God wants to help you. He's eager to help you. Unfortunately, a lot of times we don't even really think to ask Him for help. We just try to figure things out on our own according to what we think best. And even if we do take the time to ask God, our request is often perverted by our own sinful desires. It doesn't have to be this way. When you're you're suffering and confused about what to do, you don't have to fight your way through it on your own. Instead, you can turn and ask your Father to help you. And so long as the help you seek is to know and glorify Him, He's going to rush to your side to help because He's a good Father. And that's a good gift. So James exhorts us to ask because God gives without hesitation. And oh, by the way, James says he gives to all. So God gives without hesitation and without discrimination. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't treat one child as more favored than the other. Again, as James says in James 3.17, the wisdom that's from above is impartial. It's impartial because it's awarded on the basis of grace and not merit. So it is with God. He gives to all His children just the same because He gives on the basis of grace, not merit. One is not more worthy of His love than another. He desires to help them all equally. So don't think that He's going to hold back because He doesn't like you as much as someone else. It's not true. Again, He's eager to give to His children. He'll give without hesitation. And then not only that, but second, so so James says, number one, He gives without hesitation. But then second, He also gives without rebuke. I think this really captures the heart with which God gives to His children, that God gives without rebuke. You know what James is talking about here? Do you know when someone, when you go to ask some people for help, they'll, they'll help you, but they sort of chastise you at the same time for needing help? Like you'll get a guilt trip as you go and ask them for help. You say, hey, would you mind helping me out? I'm a little short on cash. I could really use $20 right now. And they'll go, I mean, sure, I guess, but why don't you have any money? Did you spend it all on something? Guess what? God doesn't give like that. When people do that, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times their intentions are mixed. On one hand, they do help you. They demonstrate love, but it's a begrudging kind of love, isn't it? Again, they're reluctant. They'll give, but they don't really want to. Either they're mad at you for asking because they don't think you deserve the money, or they want to keep the money for themselves. Either way, they'll sort of rebuke you as they help you because while they're willing to help, they don't really want to. It's not very pleasant to ask for help from people like that, is it? In fact, most of us would just assume not ask for help if that's the way they're going to go about doing it, right? Listen, James anticipates that. He understands that response, and so he's quick to point out, God doesn't give that kind of help. He's not going to rebuke you when you come to Him asking for wisdom. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that make us more eager to approach the throne of grace knowing that when we come saying, Father, I need help. Can you show me what I need to do here? That He's not going to say, what's the problem? Don't you know that already? 
He's not going to roll his eyes at us as if he has something more important to do and then sort of snort out, oh, sure, what do you need? No, he understands our condition. He knows that we're sinners whose, whose minds have been darkened by sin, and he wants us to come to him. We see this repeatedly in the Scripture. God, God isn't annoyed when we come to him asking for help. That's not what angers him. If there's anything that angers him, anything that's going to frustrate him, it's going to be when we don't ask. Again, if you have kids, you probably know what that feels like, probably most especially as they get older and they set it in their head to figure out everything on their own. You see them making, struggling through a situation, making mistake after mistake, and you know what the problem is. Experience has taught you, and you have the wisdom to fix that problem. You want to tell them how to do it. You want them to come and ask you, but they won't do it. And they'll refuse help even when you try to offer it. That's frustrating, right? When you see one of your children doing that. That's the attitude of God towards us. He's not frustrated when we ask Him for help. He's frustrated when we don't ask. Again, isn't that encouraging to know? Doesn't that make you want to start asking God for help? Why? Why would we ever hesitate? I'll tell you why we hesitate. It's because we're foolish. It's because either we don't understand or we forget what James is saying here. Because if we understood this, then God would be our first resort in times of trouble instead of our last. So I think we can see our need for wisdom. Righteousness is the answer in times of suffering, but it's not our first inclination. So we need to be instructed. And we can also see that we have a God who's eager to meet that need here. So we don't just have the need, we also have the source for wisdom. This means that there are only two questions that you need to be asking yourself right now. The first is, will I ask God the next time I need wisdom. Meaning, the next time you're faced with a trial, that can be a big trial, it can be a small trial, it doesn't really matter, whatever the case may be, the next time you feel pressure on your faith, are you simply going to do the first thing that comes to your mind, perhaps sin, just eject out of faith's refining fires for no better reason than the mere fact that you don't know what to do, or are you going to pause for a moment, breathe, and ask yourself, What would God have me do here? And then ask Him. You know, I have to say, as I've been working on this passage this week, I've realized there are far too many times in my life when I just respond to a trial. I don't stop to think and ask God what to do, I just act. And I've been seeing that I make a ton of mistakes because of that. So I've been, I've been tr- really trying to apply this passage to my own life as I've been leading up to this sermon. And I can just, can I just tell you here... James is absolutely right. Shocker, I know, right? That James would be right here. But it's true. When you come to God asking Him for help in knowing what to do, and with the right intention, so you're, you're asking Him how to honor Him, how to be obedient under pressure. When you come to Him for wisdom, and then you seek His answer through the appropriate channels, it's true, He answers. I've seen it for myself. Wise results, effective results come when you seek God for wisdom before you act. So will you do this? If so, understand that it's going to mean that you have to become increasingly aware of God and of your status before Him from moment to moment in your life because the times you're going to need this heavenly wisdom are many. It's not just once or twice a day. It's repeated instances throughout the day. So this is going to, become, this is going to have to become a pattern you build into your life as it well should be. And if that's your intention, then the second question that you need to ask yourself is how does God answer 
How does he give us this wisdom? James doesn't really address that here. He says that God will give wisdom to the man who asked for it. But how does someone ask God for wisdom, and how does God answer it? The first answer, of course, I've already alluded to, and that's prayer. That's probably the first thing that comes to mind when we think of asking God for something. And this is one way that we can ask God for wisdom. However, it's not the only way. The second way is with the Scriptures. I think this is important to note because a lot of times people want to know what God thinks and they search for answers in all kinds of impressions or feelings that they have about God. They'll say, I have a peace about it or something like that. Listen, God already told you what He thinks. It's written in His Word. He's inspired it and everything. It's all right there. So if you want to find God's wisdom, this is where you look. Again, Psalm 19. We read this earlier. Psalm 19 says... The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is what the Bible tells us. God's wisdom is found in His Word. So if you don't don't have to guess, you don't have to open, just try to say, okay, God, what do you mean right now? No, you open up your Bible and start studying. Okay? You want, to, you, you, you want to be that man or woman who, who has understanding, the one who can draw out the heart of another man or woman and give them godly counsel? You study. People tend not to like that answer because that one requires work, right? Impressions don't. But that's how the Bible presents wisdom. It doesn't just happen. You have to seek it out. Proverbs 2, 1-5 to says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Wisdom doesn't just happen. You have to go looking for it. And where you'll find it is in God's Word. This is where He's told you what is wise and what is not. So if you're praying to God for wisdom, then as you're praying, searching for answers, the question you should be asking at the same time is, what does God's Word have to say about this? When you do that, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the answers that can come to mind. Now, I should add in a caution here. While James says that God is eager to answer, I don't think that we should interpret this to mean that He always answers immediately. You go back to what Jesus says in Luke 11 about how God knows the good, how to give good gifts to His children. And right before that, He speaks about a man who's persistent in His requests. So I don't think we should always expect that the answer is going to be immediate. So what do you do then? What do you do when you're not sure what God's Word says, for instance? And that leads us to the third way you can seek God for answers, and that's by godly counsel. You know, I make this point so often, you're probably sick of hearing it by now, but it's so often overlooked, I think it bears repeating, no single Christian has it all figured out. And we're all individually given various gifts and abilities by the Holy Spirit, which complement one another. And so the picture we have repeatedly in the New Testament is of the church constantly depending on one another for growth. And this fits the picture we find in the Old Testament as well regarding wisdom. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. In other words, when it comes to wisdom, there's strength in numbers. 
It's easy for one Christian to make a mistake, to misapply the Scriptures to a situation simply for lack of knowledge. But when you start putting more and more eyes onto a situation, and they're going to be able to provide additional insight that will give greater clarity to that situation. And if you start getting to the point where you have multiple Christians all saying the same thing from the Scriptures, then you can start to be fairly confident that the answer you've arrived at is the one that's found in Scripture, and you've found God's answer. There's your wisdom. Of course, this also means that you should probably avoid bad counsel at the same time. We'll get into why this is more so next week, but, but Psalm 1.1 states it rather succinctly when it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In short, you, don't, you, you start surrounding yourself with the counsel of people who don't know their Bible, or who, perhaps who are even unbelievers, and you're not going to end up being very wise. In the words of Proverbs 14.7, Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Again, this should probably all go without saying, but, the, but sadly, the fact of the matter is that many Christians don't actually seem to understand this. They keep other Christians at arm's length, they try to pursue their faith on their own, and then they ignore godly counsel when it's given, all the while seeking the counsel of the most prominent business uh, mentor or, the, uh, or relationship or, or mental health guru, and they take the advice of their unbelieving friends and family members. They, they surround themselves with fools, and then they wonder why they're not growing in righteousness. It's not hard to figure out. Again, the Bible tells us it's because they aren't seeking actual wisdom, nor are they seeking it through the appropriate channels. So if you want to be wise, and you should want to be wise, then pray, yes. But also seek it out in God's Word and in the company of many wise and gifted counselors. Hopefully you're now both ready and equipped to start asking God for the wisdom you need to face trials. But I have to warn you, there's still one more thing to keep in mind. There's a condition. There's a condition to all this. And this is where things start to turn a corner and where we really have to start paying attention because James has some insight here that, again, I I think can absolutely revolutionize your walk as a Christian. He says, God promises to give wisdom. He says, but there's a condition. And if you don't meet the condition, then the promise is null and void. You can seek God for wisdom, but you'll seek Him in vain. And if you've ever wondered why it seems like Maybe you're never really growing as a Christian. You just feel like you're spinning your wheels, chasing your tail. You're not really growing. If you ever wondered why that is, this might be the answer right here. So what is that? What's the condition that we have to keep in mind if we're going to ultimately become wise? That's what James is going to show us in the second command in this passage next week. So I invite you to start your quest for wisdom by coming back to part, for part two of this message next week. Let's close by asking that God would make us wise. Let's pray.